Hi, everyone. Welcome to this name drop edition of the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. My guest today is Ron Salisbury, the city of San Diego's first ever poet laureate. Ron served as poet laureate from 2020 through this year, writing poems and acting as an ambassador to the art form citywide. Ron has had an amazing and storied life. He was a casino pit boss in Las Vegas, an investment banker in San Francisco, a coffee shop owner in Sonoma, and of course, a poet and teacher of poetry for more than 40 years. He also has numerous bachelor's and master's degrees. In this conversation, we talk about understanding poetry versus writing it. We talk about how he fell in love with poetry as a child and stick around to the end to hear him read. Here's our conversation. Okay, Ron, it's so nice to have you on this podcast. It's great to to finally meet you. How are you doing? I am doing quite quite well, quite well. Today you, is wonderful. How did your reading at the Festival of Books go? Uh, you know, that was uh, that was very nice. It was one of the first ones early in the morning and it was outside. Uh, and um, there was a, a lot of people that came to that. that. That was the first public reading I had done since the whole world shut down. And uh, so I got to see a lot of friends of mine that had basically disappeared for two years. So it was very enjoyable that was there. Wow. Uh, wow. First reading since the pandemic. Um, what did you read? Did I read? I spent a, most of my time talking with John, who is the was the host, and he uh, owns uh, Diesel Books, and he is from the San Francisco Bay Area, and was there during kind of the pivotal poetry times, shall we say, twenty years ago. And so we ended up talking an awful lot about the Bay Area, and I read uh, a few poems from uh, my book, and then I read a few poems from. Uh, what I'm working on right now. I have a new book coming out. And so I read a few points from that. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so speaking of the Bay Area, you have also some secondary words on Christy, your speaker began to cut out and I could not hear that okay. question. So okay. Can you hear me now? Try it again. Yes. I can. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, well, speaking of the Bay Area, you also have a history there. Uh, you went to school there, you studied poetry there, and you were exposed to a lot of top poets uh, while at Berkeley. Tell me tell me more about that experience. The, uh, interesting. Actually, uh, let's see. I studied at uh, Antioch University in San Francisco, and uh, I got an undergraduate and a master's in uh, an undergraduate in business and poetry, if you can believe that. And then I got a master's in management. Then I went to Mills College, where I basically uh, did not study poetry there. But in the meantime, I had attended all kinds of classes in uh, at Berkeley that was through their extension. And that was one of the wildest times. Uh, it was taught by a man named Alan Soldowski, who now runs San Jose's uh, the, their whole writing program down there and has for years. And so there was, this was a time when their writing conferences were just starting up. This was the early 1980s. And there weren't that many around. And there was one in Napa that was the Napa Valley Writers Conference. And so 
Allen was able to capture every major poet that, that was writing in the United States that came through with that and went to his extension course, which was taught in the evening. And it was there for three years. And uh, it would be like, I don't know, 12 weeks. Well, then we would all petition to have another six weeks. And they would, there were so many people in the class that they would allow him to teach it six weeks more. So almost every single week we had a major American poet that was there and I got to talk and whatnot. And then I was also on the board of directors of Poetry Flash, which is Northern California's Bible. It's actually the West Coast Bible of what is going on. So I was on their board of directors for about three or four years. And uh, through that, I also got to meet all kinds of poets that was there. But I came back here in 2008 and then went to San Diego State and got a Master of Fine Arts in poetry too. So just kind of bouncing around doing what the heck I want to do. <laughs> yeah, you've had a very storied life. I've been reading a lot about you, a lot of different yeah. um, jobs. But I mean, you mentioned business, you studied business, you studied poetry, you're an investment banker who is also yes. writing poetry. I have to yeah. imagine there's not like a whole lot of crossover in those two industries. Well, um, I was a bit of an oddball, and uh, and uh, but I was, you know, obviously good enough so that I made it work. But yeah, you know, I'd get shipped off to uh, Australia, and I would go find writing workshops and uh, poetry readings in Sydney, and uh, turn up there, and uh, and the same thing in Canada and England. Uh, I would find uh, I couldn't do it in. Germany because they didn't speak English and so I tried to go but it was too much you know but yeah every place I went I usually found some workshop or lesson or something to do you know well what is what is the appeal in both business and and poetry for you well business provides the food for a poet so they can write <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, poetry is not known for it being you know a great financial you know, support for you. So you have to do other things. Uh, now it's, uh, now that I'm um, doing various retirement things, except that I teach almost full time for God's sakes. So it's not really retirement. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And, uh, uh, and I teach through San Diego Writers Inc. And uh, I'm quite busy with doing that. Uh, well, I read about you on your website that um, you you first were exposed to post poetry by a teacher, and you were pretty yeah. taken by Robert Frost. Um, you know, yeah. why did his work have such an impact on on you? And and can you remember the poem or the lines that struck you? Well, it it was um, it was the the path the road less taken. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Uh, we were sent home in seventh grade to write a poem over the weekend. It, uh, it was part, this is the time, my schools were very small, and this was considered big time because in one room was just the seventh grade. But before that, in my whole school life, all of the grades were in one room. So I went to a one-room school for, you know, up until the uh, seventh grade. And then we kind of went to the big school where you had all seventh grade in one class. and. Uh, so the teacher taught everything. And so in the English section, he was teaching us poetry. And Robert Frost with New England, because it was in the state of Maine, that's where it was. So 
It was prominent, sent us home with it. And my mother was the neighborhood rhymer. People would come to her to write, you know, the ditty on a birthday card or an anniversary card. And so uh, I went home to ask her, you know, would she help me? Well, she talked to me a little bit. And, and uh, just about 10 or 15 minutes, and I said, you know, I think I've got this. And that was the beginning, and it's never stopped. And uh, I can even remember the first lines I wrote on that poem. Uh, uh, a hunter arose in the early morn, grabbed his musket and powder horn. I even rhymed it. <laughs> I love that. That's seventh grade, you know? Amazing. Um, well, something that you do, I think, is interesting is, you know, it's been a point for you to write um, poetry, to share poetry with normal people, not necessarily academics, you know, not <laughs> uh, high styling uh, poets. Why is that important? Uh, well, I'd like to expand the appreciation. A lot of people have been ruined by uh, high school poetry and by the first one or two years in college, what is being taught to them. And it's been taught in reverse. You're often taught classic poetry, and poets from the Victorian age and for the romantic period, which are not in the language of today, which I think it's valuable to know those poets, but I think it should be in reverse. You should teach poets today and then go to those periods when people are ready. I like to be able to show people that poetry is not just a crazy word soup, that it, that it has, you can understand it. That, uh, you know, there's, there's been a tremendous movement, although it's lessening now, but that if a poem could be understood, it couldn't be any good, you know. Poetry had to be hard and difficult or it wasn't any good. And I have never ascribed to that. And, uh, so mine is readily readable. Uh, it is. It requires some people and most people to look up some of the words I use. So it is not uh, dumbing down. It's not talking down. It's meeting people eyeball to eyeball, but with uh, information that is accessible. And and I feel it's a missionary kind of thing to spread poetry. Where do you think that idea comes from, though, that that poetry, good poetry, ought to be, you know, difficult and inaccessible? You know, uh, it was a reaction against the restrictions of poetry that were in our country, primarily almost all before World War II. And it was taught uh, academically, that was there was very little uh, coffee shop work or or grass work, roots work. I mean, before the returning service people in world after World War II, the normal person couldn't go to college. They weren't allowed in, and they couldn't afford it. But after World War II, the halls of academia opened up with the GI Bill. Many colleges didn't want those soldiers to go to their college because they thought they would dumb down the whole education process. What they found was in a matter of three or four years, those returning servicemen were at the top of every damn class. And so the reaction to all of the restricted poetry, which is generally controlled by old white men before that, began to break down. And as it began to break down, 
people were trying to find new ways to express themselves, their experience. The world opened up to people of different genders, people of different races, people of different ethnicities and other belief systems. And they began to find formats and ways to get their poems printed. But their experience of life was so different. And so oftentimes, then the poetry of the poet today is the interior landscape, where oftentimes before it was the exterior landscape on the five senses. We don't have the words to express our emotions. We don't have the words to express feelings. And so we struggle with how to do it, with metaphors and similes. And sometimes that pushes people to obscurity. And there was, especially in the late 80s and through the 90s, horrible poetry that was obscure everywhere. And it was it's struggling out of it. It's like, you know, some kind of swimmer now finding a life boy and pulling their head out of water. It's just happening now a little bit more. You begin to see more and more clarity and understanding being an integral part and uh, new ways of expressing ourselves and our life in this crazy world. And uh, so it, it was a natural occurrence, you know, and I think we're struggling out of it now. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, that explanation, that history. Um, well, how do you go about teaching people uh, to understand poetry and teaching them that it's more than, as you said, word soup? I give them examples that are out there. And I also show them how to look at it, how to read it. You know, there are ways of looking at the use of time, the use of pacing, the use of image and uh, explaining how a metaphor works and how you find two parts of it and it helps you understand it. The conditional words, you know, a poem has so, but, therefore, and that means it's all referring to what went on on top of it as to what comes afterwards. And so you're explaining a little bit about how English works in our daily usage that we take for granted, but when we see it on a page, we seem to forget that it's those things. And so it's basically pointing out what the poet is actually saying. Most of the time, you believe that the poet is trying to tell you something that is secretive, that is almost coded language. And I say, you know, most of the time it's not. You're not believing what the poet says. You can make these crazy jumps to a metaphor and another image, and that may be part of it. But first, you have to believe the poet. The poet says it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. <laughs> you know? That's a good tip. Um, well, what are, what are you working on these days? Well, uh, after I, you know, birthing a new book is almost the gestation period of a human. So it's just a crazy long process that's with it. And uh, I think it'll be out by, uh, it, it's supposed to be out by Thanksgiving. So now I'm, uh, but I teach every fall, just like a regular school year, my classes start at uh, Writers Inc. and go right through. And they're taught, you know, there are 25 classes between uh, the 1st of September and the end of May. So it's quite like a school year split up into two sections that goes with it. And they're three hour long graduate level classes about it. 
And uh, although the syllabus has been pretty well set, this would be my fifth year doing this, I add to that all of the time. So I'm always tinkering that as new poems arise and new examples to try to make it as contemporary as possible. The other thing too is that I produce a poem every single week. I have a large email list of 500 people that I send it to. And so I have, I'm compelled, I go to workshops as a workshop participant, not just a leader, in order to be able to work with my, my poems that are with it. So I'm compelled to write a poem every single week. And I also write a writing prompt, or sometimes it's an introduction of a poet or an introduction of a poet's new book. And there is a big list of those people. So I'm always reading and writing those. And uh, this is better than having a real job. <laughs> um, well, I subscribe to your poem of the week and I, I recommend uh, it. Do, do you write more than one? Do yeah. you, uh, how do you decide which one to share? What is your process for sitting down and doing it? I, you know, I've read a quote where you said, look, this is a job. You have to sit down and do it, not wait for inspiration to come to you. But how do you summon then inspiration? You sit down and write. And some days what you write is a grocery list, but at least you were writing. So you have to learn how to unhinge your mind, like untying the boat from the dock and letting it flow. You know, you look through your heart, you look through the window and you write what comes to you. But it's like learning how to meditate. You know, people have to be, strangely enough, taught how to meditate. Well, you have to be sometimes taught how to unhinge your mind, how to let and how to trust inspiration. How to, how to write a ton of bad poems. You know, if you only write the good poem, you're not gonna write at all. You have to write, you know? Maybe there's one good line in what you wrote today and you spent 35 minutes banging away and you got one line, well, that's good. You know? So that's how you do it. Besides that, I have the pressure. Monday morning, you gotta have a new poem, so, you know. Sunday sometimes gets a little airy. But. Yeah, nothing like a deadline. I, I agree. I couldn't get anything done without one. Um, well, how do you how do you keep up with poetry? Are there like publications or do you just keep yeah. up with individual uh, writers? All of that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a wild forest that's out there at this particular time. And so on, you know, I have two computers here going most of the time, but there's all kinds of websites free or with a small fee, of which you can subscribe to journals, you can subscribe to free poetry that comes across. And I also chase down poets. Uh, I know poets, I know if I, if I have, find a reference to a poet or a poem, and I really like what they've written, and I'm not familiar with that poet, I begin to look them up, I begin to find what they've done. I search as much as I can to find out. And if they pass kind of the litmus test, I'll go find a book of theirs. You know, I have the greatest collection of used books in the world because that fits my budget. And uh, then I study them, then I look at them. And if they're good, I share them with my writing prompt to my, my writing group. So it's, most people think writing poetry is writing poetry. It isn't, it's reading poetry. You know, if you've got 100% of your time, this, this little block of time is 100%, that's what you can give to poetry. 
20% of that should be writing and 80% of that should be reading. But most people think writing poetry is you sit down and write poetry. No, you sit down and read poetry and then maybe you'll write. It, the other thing too, is that you're not gonna teach most people how to write poetry. You either have that variant of a gene or you don't. But what you can teach people is how to read poetry. They'll be better readers that's with it. Then they'll find maybe that they'll write. But you can have the gene. What are um, some some works you have on, on your syllabus, some things you think are important for, for students to, to read and know? Well, it's a long list. It's a two-page bibliography that I give out to my students. And it is both, I mean, they're mostly living poets or recently died poets. And it's according to when I get to know the student, if I'm not familiar with them, what they're interested in, then I make some recommendations on that particular list. I mean, I'm reading a, a guy today. Where did I put David's book? Uh, David Shoemate. Yeah, here it is. He's a prose poet. David Shoemate, S-H-U-M-A-T-E. Actually, this is his third book. His, the, his first two were better. And uh, so I find them, I recommend them to people. People oftentimes look at the authors that are on my writing prompt that I send out in the week because I have oftentimes many poems on those prompts and they'll look up those poets and if they like them, they'll buy their books. You know. Um, I wanted to ask you about a different phase in your life. I read that you are a Vegas pit boss who was married to a Las Vegas showgirl. <laughs> um, tell, yeah. tell me about that time. Uh, well, it's a lot like flying an airplane. You know, 95% uh, of it is boredom. But that other 5%, wow, let me tell you. <laughs> so, you're being a pit boss, it's boring. They have to be alert, but boy, there's 5% that is just crazy as hell. It's just great. <laughs> and um, it, I never wanted to be anything but a poet, but I had to be a whole lot of other things. And so I never had a plan. And it was what happened. I had a friend of mine that was a musician uh, who was playing in a band and uh, I was living in New York City. It was kind of boring there at that time. And his band was going to spend six weeks in Las Vegas. And he, uh, he called me up and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not doing anything important. He said, there's only two other guys on the bus that plays Pinochle. And we used to be great Pinochle players. And he said, if you're not doing anything, why don't you come out and play Pinochle? So I, came, I drove out in an old Volkswagen to play Pinochle in Las Vegas. The car broke down. He moved on. And I stayed there 11 years and became a pit boss. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, I lived in Las Vegas for 17 years. And I have had, I've heard a variation of that story. You know, the car breaks <laughs> yeah. down. The car breaks down. I think that's the only reason anybody ever moves yeah. to Las Vegas is because your car broke down there and you have no money to get home. Um, well, where did you, where did, I know that you wrote a book about this, Miss Desert Inn. I mean, where yes. did you find inspiration in Vegas and, uh, you know, just in general? Uh, you know, I've, that book, Miss Desert Inn, uh, my first wife was Miss Desert Inn. 
And so that was named after her. And there's only one section in it that is about that. Uh, oftentimes, especially your first books, get to be autobiographical. And so, you, I mean, almost first, many first novels are autobiographical. That's the first thing. You want to look at a writer's third novel to find out whether they have gone beyond that and if they're really good uh, with it. And so that book has an arc. Uh, I, I published that in 2015. Uh, when I was in uh, San Diego State getting my master's program, my, my manuscript was picked up and won a contest. And uh, so that's a lot of years that were behind it. And so it has a lot of uh, getting out of Maine, where I grew up. It has Las Vegas. It's had after Las Vegas. So it has a whole scope of life that comes from that. And Las Vegas is only one part of it. And actually, considering how long I was there, it, it, it hasn't influenced my writing a lot. It has influenced it. And uh, I think every place I've ever been is influenced, but it's not had the kind of resonance. I find I'm more impressed by the ocean here in San Diego since I've been here as far as a, a, a writing impulse than Las Vegas did. It also could be that I'm much older too. Uh, I was not, I was, uh, you know, early 20s when I went there and uh, got out of there in my early 30s. And uh, my writing has changed dramatically. As a matter of fact, it's changed in the last 10 years. So, uh, How so? It's become more lyrical. It's less narrative. It's more trying to express that interior walking around human as opposed to the exterior walking around human. And, uh, and it's become more that way. Um, I would say that my poetry has become more difficult to take in one reading, but it hasn't really passed on into obscurity or hard or any of those other things. But it, it takes a little bit more of a dedicated reader these days or dedicated. And when I do readings, I don't really, really read the stuff that is difficult to comprehend because what's the sense? You're sitting there in the audience. If you can't get it, then what the heck are you doing there? And so why am I reading you stuff that you can't get without looking at the page? So, you know, I would say the stuff on the page is more complex. Mine is more complex than the stuff I would read at a reading. Yeah, what, what is the difference there? Uh, you know, poems, I guess, that maybe that are better read versus uh, better performed or, or heard. 90% of the consumption of poetry in the United States is read, not heard. And even with the amount of, of spoken poetry that's out there, it's still 90% of the poetry in the United States is read. And when you're reading and something happens, you've got a chance to go back and reference it. And many poems, one of the goals it is that by the time you get to the end, it forces you to go back because something is in it and now it makes sense and clarity. And so it's designed that way. Well, imagine sitting in the audience. Oh my God, you can see the blank faces. You can see people just passing out, you know, with that stuff. And poets, <laughs> you know, look, poetry entertains. And if you go there to hear your own voice, then you're not entertaining them. 
you know, poetry isn't meant to be a puzzle. It isn't meant to be coded. It's a meant to express and struggle with our lives. That's today, that's different, that's changed. It really is to express our being in this crazy complex world. And through that, you may find some information about your own. And I think that's wonderful. But if you can't understand me, and you're sitting in an audience, you know, there is the, uh, the poetry obscure groan. And that is the poem finishes and you hear the audience going, oh. And that's the poetry obscure groan. Go to an open reading, you'll hear that. <laughs> um, well, how do you go about, or what is your advice, you know, for people who, how do you go about finding something that that you like that that appeals to you? Well, first, I think you've got to create your your box of tools so that you know what a poem is trying to do. It requires you to be an attentive human. You cannot be passive. Look, the when the poem leads leaves the poet, someone else takes over. And the person reading it or hearing it becomes part of the creative process. So it's a collaboration. And a lot of poets forget that. You need to be able to invite the reader in. They have to be able to be part of the creative process that's with it. What you may like is different from what I may like. And so the other thing, too, is if I try to write a poem that everyone's going to like, it's going to fail. There's going to be a certain portion of my audience that won't like that poem. The same way as you pick up a book of poetry. If you like every poem in that book, that means you're probably not an attentive reader. Now, there are some books that may have a lot of them in it that you like. And then that person is really, that poet speaking to you. But it'd be doggone hard with 50 poems, which is the usual amount in a book, maybe 60 for that poet to have hit on the right scale of you for it. The other thing too is that how many A poems are in that book? Out of the 50, how many A poems are in it? How many Bs? What do you think of the Cs that's there? And if you're not paying attention to that, you're not reading. And so you find out what you like. Boy, I like this guy. What's another book? I like this woman. I like how she approaches the issues that I approach. Who else does she? You look at the journals she's published in, and then you look up the journals and you find the other poems in that. You know, the last thing is you look her up and send her an email and say, who else writes like you? Mm. Okay. Well, that makes me feel better that you don't have to like everything. Um, It seems like a good time to ask you to read something of yours, if you don't mind. Well, I wish you'd have told me beforehand because I don't know if I have anything set here. <laughs> that's okay. That's wait okay. Minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> How about something out of here? <laughs> Great. It's a big folder with a bunch of post-its sticking out of it. it. Looks very exciting. Well, yeah, that you know, when I'm doing a reading. Okay. How about this one? And uh, this is, you know, a little bit inspired by baseball. You see, baseball is the closest human activity that's close to poetry. 
Mm. So I just want you to know that the whole design of a baseball game is like a poem. <laughs> just that line is very poetic. <laughs> okay. This is called Nine Innings. Now, remember, at my age, I write a lot about being my age. I make fun of how someone your age would think that someone my age is supposed to act. And I do it in an ironic way oftentimes, which is to make fun of that. And I also try to address the kind of issues of being a hidden senior citizen, because most senior citizens are hidden. So with that in mind, on some of these things, and you know, the, the scope of life in front of you is far different from the scope of life in front of me. So all of those work on my point. This is called nine innings. And I do this in kind of sorrowful nature of the Padres not going any further than they did. I, so I want you to know that. God crouches behind the dish, face mask, chest protector, shin guards, puts three fingers down, waggles to the inside. I don't agree and throw a change up. Swing and miss. God calls time and visits the mound. Listen, he says, this guy's a wuss. Let him hit middle, middle. I do. And the center fielder tracks it down 15 feet from the wall. God tears off his mask. See, he yells, I told you. Now you got another year. Wow. Um, yeah, poor Padres, but meant to be in some way, I guess. Oh, to, to heck with philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I appreciate the nature of your work in that way. I was reading a, a poem on your website about uh, a Quatamundi in the closet. And I cackled like I just I wasn't exp I, I didn't know what I was reading at first, you know, I did have to look up a couple of the words. I didn't know what the garment was. Uh, but once I got to the end of it, it was so funny. I it surprised me. It surprised me that I laughed out loud at a poem. I really can't remember the last time that's happened. That uh, that character in that poem is Reggie. Uh, Reginald S. Ham is the more formal thing, but he is a persona that I write in. And yeah, I, I'm very fond of that one. Reg, I think it's called Reggie's Pet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, so is your new book out now? Nope, not yet. Okay. I guess I, I'm hoping by. Uh, it's. Uh, I love my love my cover. This is a. This has mm. this beautiful, and it has a. It's got French foldouts, so you see. And it basically is a young artist that I know who is a muralist. And mm -hmm. this is a mural on a building in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And it is the impression of mountains and everything that's with it. And the title of the book is, Please Write and Tell Me What I Looked Like When You Met Me. <laughs> uh, again, the age, the age thing. Yes. That's, yeah. Well, you, you write what you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think it's relatable to, to people in different age groups? Yes, I do. Well, you know, I use an awful lot of the ironic nature in order to do it. And I think that that allows you to say something extremely serious and, and poignant, but it makes it a little easier to take sometimes. Like you just said, you know, 
uh, at that poem, if you look back at it, Reggie's Peck, if you look through that, you'll find that there's a lot of messages in that about the disappointment of the mother who never saw these things and pines for having done it and how that's translated to the son or Reggie at that particular point and how he incorporates that in his life, as well as the humor of the and the strange places. Yeah. She, 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 she'd never been to, to Goosey Galpo. Right. Um, yeah, I took it to <laughs> to mean maybe generational mental illness, <laughs> some <laughs> some class stuff about the dad and the mashed potatoes. Uh, you know, <laughs> really interesting, but really, really well done. I didn't lie about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Would it, what was it? Wouldn't eat a, a, a vegetable that wasn't mashed? No, no, God, no. He hated it. This was Maine <laughs> before. You know, you couldn't preserve anything. The only vegetable you had in Maine was canned they mm. were like in mason jars. God, that stuff tasted horrible. So, you know, he never was used to eating good vegetables. You kind of froze up on me again with your okay. vocal. Okay. Can you hear me now? Sorry go. about that. Okay. Yep. Yeah. My computer's overheating. I have to have this fan on it. Um, well, Ron, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm sorry that I uh, sabotaged you with the reading, but, you know, uh, thank you for, for pulling one up. Well, quickly and, I, I think I recovered well enough. You did. You did. I, <laughs> I should have let you know yeah. beforehand. But I look forward to, to your new book. So when did you say it would be out? Uh, it, they say, I just got an email, but I, I never trust printers or publishers more than I can throw them. They say if, uh, the 22nd of uh, November. Awesome. Coming up. All right. Well, thank you for sharing um, your story with me and, uh, you know, helping to explain poetry a little more. I, I look forward to reading <laughs> some with your, your advice in mind. So thank you. Okay. Thank you, Christy.